0: Again, that's podsurvey.com slash beat. Thanks for your help.
1: Welcome to The Beat, everyone. I am Ari Melber, and we are beginning this week tracking several stories for you, including the nation meeting its new Speaker of the House, from the very real questions facing the real Mike Johnson to the Saturday Night Live debut of his own impression that you see there in a mock meeting with President Biden for Halloween. So we have more on that and a special guest on that front tonight, the real... Long time Biden chief of staff, Ron Klain, is here tonight. In fact, it's his first time on the program since leaving the White House. We have all that. And also later tonight, a report from the Middle East. But our top story right now is a new procedural victory for DOJ prosecutor Jack Smith and thus a legal loss for defendant Donald Trump, who got in trouble for his recent attacks on his own former aide turned key DOJ witness, Mark Meadows. Jack Smith just won his bid to invoke those attacks to re-gag Trump, and that is the kind of technical legal way to put it. You may have heard about this. I'm going to walk, it, walk through it with you right now. Basically, late Sunday, the federal judge overseeing that open coup case reinstated a partial gag order that bars defendant Trump from attacking witnesses and others, and that order had been on hold, basically in deference to the appeals process. But Trump blew that by attacking Matt Meadows after ABC reported that he was cooperating with Jack Smith against Trump in this coup case. Now, this judge found that Trump's attack almost certainly violated what would have been that initial gag order. Trump had singled out a foreseeable witness in a, quote, attempt to influence Him in a way that would be, of course, preventing the witness's participation in this case, end quote. Now, those words I just said, that is how a judge carefully explains witness tampering. In plain English, though, I got to tell you to start the night, another reaction here would just be, duh. Because it doesn't take that much analysis when Donald Trump is literally, publicly attacking this key witness, Mark Meadows, to try to shape his testimony. And underneath that, there is a guilty mindset, because apparently the defendant here, Donald Trump, worries that just truthful testimony would be bad for him, would hurt him in court. This is the same tactic, of course, that Donald Trump has used in other settings, including times when there wasn't a case pending. He used it against his own vice president, Mike Pence, which led up to the insurrection as Trump fans literally responded by putting up a gallows in front of our Congress, efforts that the Secret Service took seriously that they viewed as a plots to murder and assassinate Mike Pence, who is back in the news, by the way, because he just quit his Republican presidential campaign over the weekend. Now, this is also just like how Trump attacked another former aide-turned-witness, Michael Cohen, when he called him a rat and used mob language to try to intimidate him. Now, for years... Trump has used this kind of mob talk and action to try to corrupt the cases against him, to try to duck accountability. It's a knowing nod to basically everything from mafia movies to real-life New York mobsters that Trump has talked about before. Take John Gotti, who, remember, beat three different cases amidst allegations of tampering and worse before finally getting convicted. Now, that's a comparison that actually goes just beyond their rhetoric or even their mugshots, which we put up here to remind you, that they've both faced their legal proceedings, it reminds everyone, including some of the prosecutors facing off against Trump, that people who are habitually accused of criminal conduct and who habitually intimidate or attack witnesses can sometimes get out of things. And prosecutors and judges have to adjust for that and then figure out how to maintain an independent and fair court that is not abused or corrupted by those sometimes effective tactics, including against witnesses. So while some of this is old and familiar, when I tell you tonight that the news is this judge, who was so fair that she paused the gag order, is reinstating it. It is to prevent Donald Trump from trying to go gaudy again. Now the problem here remains that Meadows does not seem to be backing off from what we know. And we don't know everything. We've cautioned people that a lot of these proceedings are private until they go to trial. But the reporting and the implications are that Mark Meadows is cooperating with Jack Smith. And that may mean that he is more scared of the prosecutors than his old boss, Donald Trump, right now. And before I get to our great guests that we've assembled tonight, I'm going to give you the breakdown to show why. Meadows is also a co-defendant in Georgia, where now three of his former co-workers have confessed. Those are the red convicted stamps you see on the top row. They've pled guilty. And those convicted people are now vowing to testify against Meadows, who you see indicted in the bottom row, and the others who are holding out, and of course, Donald Trump, the key defendant in that RICO case. But remember, two of those Georgia convicts and three of those defendants overall are also on the hook in this separate but related Jack Smith DOJ case. They are the unindicted co-conspirators. Powell, Chesbro, Giuliani, Eastman, and Clark. So this is where Meadows has reportedly struck a deal. Remember, we don't know what he's doing in Georgia. We know the heat is rising. But in the DOJ front, we have him as a witness seeking some sort of immunity to testify. And that could hurt the indicted Trump. It could hurt the other co-conspirators. So those are the two separate cases. Now, in our breakdown for you, I want to show you the combined pressure with these recent developments over just the past two weeks or so. Because when you take both cases together, You see why Trump is now in a worse spot. Meadows, now a star witness for the DOJ as he eyes his fate in Georgia as well. The other Georgia convicts are now under pressure to match whatever they swear under oath in Georgia with what they may ultimately say about Trump and the coup plots in the DOJ federal case. They could also, like Meadows, try to get some sort of witness immunity deal themselves. And some of them, as you see on the bottom of the screen, aren't cooperating yet in either place. So Giuliani, Eastman, and Clark, they're kind of standing by while other people take deals. Now, anyone who hasn't taken a deal and been convicted is legally presumed innocent. They may ultimately win. They could win and In Georgia, they could not ultimately be turned from an unindicted to an indicted co-conspirator. We are just going to track the evidence on that. But the sum total of the two cases you see on your screen with Donald Trump in the upper left, indicted in both places, is that there are more people convicted, more people confessing, and more people providing testimony who didn't even confess, like Meadows, than there were a few weeks ago. That's the legal context for Donald Trump lashing out at Meadows in DC, even though he jeopardized his own gag order. That's the context because Trump knows that's where his first case is coming. It's also why he is regagged by this judge as of, well, late last night. Now, it has become somewhat common to treat Trump's cases as all kind of a blur. And there's been a conventional wisdom that's formed over the past few years. You may have heard that, you know, the top Trump people, well, they don't really seem to get in trouble. Well, seeing reality, though, requires seeing when things change, even if it breaks a pattern or as they like to say in D.C., a narrative. So what's changing is now three Trump aides are in trouble, confessing, one cooperating as well with Meadows, and no one has faced a coup trial yet. The three who pled guilty did so to avoid having to face the evidence and the witnesses in court, as well as the stiffer jail sentences that come with trying to fight all the way to the end. That's why Jenna Ellis cut that deal. Now, when I mentioned the conventional wisdom and the narrative... Not everyone is tracking this every day. People are busy with their own lives, with other problems. There's other news stories. There's everything going on in the world. And so it is understandable that it's almost become a kind of a punchline that Donald Trump is facing so many different cases, even people who kind of keep an eye on it have trouble keeping track. Indeed, I want to share with you what Saturday Night Live said about this in a joke just over the weekend.
2: Former president and current courtroom sketch model Donald Trump <laughs>
1: testified...
3: On the stand for the first time in over 10 years. And it's fun that nobody is 100% sure which
1: trial this sketch is from. (laughs) Which trial is it? Now, to some degree, that is a mood that the Trump folks think can help them in the short run, at least politically. The idea that it all sort of becomes a blur and what was once this bad sign, unprecedented thing of a former president being indicted has become a kind of a cacophony of cases and dues and dribbling updates out of those cases. But that is PR. That is optics. Over here are courtrooms. And again, defendant Trump is presumed innocent. Mark Meadows, who hasn't decided what he's going to do in Georgia, presumed innocent there. They're all legally presumed innocent. And if they beat the case, we'll report on that and life will go on. But the difference in the courtroom that you can't just joke away or blur away or use PR tactics to minimize is that Donald Trump is going on trial in March in this federal case where he is now partially gagged, facing reportedly Mark Meadows and facing the prospect of other unindicted co-conspirators who are now convicts in state court who have now confessed. And that pressure is building in a way that he understands, which is why he— the man with so many court cases and so much court experience people can literally joke about it, why he took a knowing risk going after Meadows in public because apparently he is very scared that if his former chief of staff, who was more involved than any other living person in the day-to-day lead up to the insurrection, if that guy comes in and tells the truth, well, it could get Donald Trump convicted in federal court or he could end up in federal prison. That is the reality that's changing before our very eyes. I want to bring in two of our seasoned lawyers with a lot of federal experience in exactly those federal courtrooms. I want to ask both of you about this. We're going to be back together in just one minute.
0: Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning in your inbox, you'll find expert analysis, video highlights of your favorite shows. Running for re-election is when you actually get your report card from the American people. Previews from our podcasts and documentaries, as well as written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com.
1: How is the heat on Donald Trump changing, and why did he just get gagged in federal court? Well, as promised, we turn to our experts, to experienced former DOJ officials, Neil Kochel and Joyce Vance. Uh, Joyce, I want to hand it right to you uh, with one of the charts that we ended on in our, in our leadoff story tonight, which is how these two cases are combining or colliding to put pressure on Trump. Uh, your thoughts on that uh, and what he faces in, in the federal court trial.
4: Right. So clearly the federal charges are the charges that feel most important to all of us, Ari, because that's the central conspiracy around January 6th and the big lie. It's always been a little bit of a mystery whether there's any coordination between Fonnie Willis and Jack Smith. We don't see anything happening publicly publicly. But whether it's intentional or not, those two cases are, as you say, impacting each other. And every time Fonnie Willis gets a new plea deal down in Georgia, Donald Trump's lawyers in Washington have to flinch. Mark Meadows is also an unknown. His lawyer pushed back very stridently, saying that the evidence that Meadows was testifying to was not as favorable as reported I've seen defense lawyers actually do that to protect their client before they get to a big trial. That's not impossible. Or Meadows could be in part a hostile witness who was forced to testify by the grant of immunity. Either way, though, prosecutors now know what Meadows' testimony will be, and that was what was important here. They need to know if he's friendly, if he's not friendly, and precisely how that fits into their case.
1: Hmm. Neil?
2: Yeah, so first of all, Ari, I thought that your monologue did such a good job of laying out not just the different cases that are against Donald Trump, but all the different pleas and cooperators and where this ultimately is going to go. And I thought you made such an important point in saying, look, these are courtrooms now. This is not politics. Trump lives in the land of politics, and he tries to use his political tax in, court, tax in court. He tried that back in the 2020 election, 62 times, and lost. And he's trying to do a similar thing here, a kind of combination of lawlessness and intimidation. And that's why you have this regag gag order imposed today, which I do think, for the reasons you said, is incredibly significant, because what Judge Chutkin found was, look, Trump, you're not playing by the rules. You're trying to intimidate witnesses. You're trying to attack prosecutors. And you're ultimately a threat to the rule of law if you continue this behavior. And what did she point to in particular? She pointed to Trump's own testimony, his own tweet or whatever you call it, a truth social against Mark Meadows, the person you were just talking about. So in a way, Donald Trump gave the strongest evidence against his motion to try and unseal the gag order. Uh, But but he was the best witness against that because he himself, the minute that it was lifted, started going and attacking witnesses once again.
1: Uh, And Neil, what does it tell us that he's not just saying, oh, Mark, Tell them everything. You were in on the meetings, a call to Georgia, calls to other places. Yeah, tell them what happened. I'm very confident that the full story will uh, match my innocence. It it sounds very much something else, which is why I make, the the comparison I make to Gotti is about the tampering. Uh, I'm not, for example, suggesting that Donald Trump was running uh, interstate uh, mafia business and construction in New York, I am suggesting that the evidence shows that both of these people, when they get in trouble, have quite literally been credibly accused of tampering with the process, meaning not that the process will find the facts and they're comfortable with that, but that they're afraid uh, that the evidence and the facts would convict them.
2: That's right, Ari. So it's not, you're, you're not saying that that Trump is doing the same crime, substantive crimes, like drug dealing as the mob or something. You're saying it's a mob tactics. And that is, of course, Trump's modus operandi. When is he ever in any of these investigations told people to go tell the truth, you know, without fear of consequence before the grand jury or the prosecutors? Never, because Trump is afraid of the truth the way that a vampire is afraid of sunlight. And so he's going to consistently say this, scare them, say, try and get them scared, say that as he did to Mark Meadows, only cooperate. Only you know, cooperators are people who are weak and you know, and things like that. And so it's going to be attack after attack with the idea of intimidating, which is straight out of the mob playbook. You're right; it's not the same crimes, but it is the same behavior and the same threat to the rule of law that a mob boss poses.
1: Joyce.
4: Well, I think Neil's dead on the money here. And Trump didn't stop when the judge reimposed the gag order, which I think is the telling point. You know, Neil makes this fine line point here that the best evidence against Trump always comes from Trump. We've seen that. I think that that's something we've discussed about for the last six years, starting with the firing of Jim Comey, right? It's always Trump revealing his own inner motives and talking about what he's done. And so here we see that last night, Judge Chutkin reimposes the gag order. She's had it on an administrative stay to give Trump the opportunity to respond and to argue against it. She finds that his arguments aren't meritorious. And just minutes after it's reimposed, he's back on Truth Social talking about Bill Barr, In very similar ways to the way that he talked about Mark Meadows. But even beyond that, those, the, like Neil, I struggled because I don't want to call it a truth, but that's what they call it on Truth Social. Um, So Trump has this truth that he posts while the gag order is stayed. He doesn't take it down when the gag order is reimposed. And technically, that means that he's in violation of the gag order. The gag order doesn't say if you said it before the gag order was imposed and keep saying it will give you grace. Here, Trump's failure to take it down is something I think we'll see prosecutors bring to the court's attention pretty quickly.
1: Really interesting. And, you know, I remind viewers, uh, Joyce was a U.S. attorney overseeing many such cases, including how prosecutors think. So you're kind of giving us a clue that they may use that hook and say this is on. It's being essentially rebroadcast or ongoing broadcast. uh, And therefore, he's on the hook for it. I also appreciate your linguistic care, Joyce, um, but again, these are his truths, as they might say. Uh, whether they are literally true in court is uh, not up to him. Uh, Joyce and Neil, thank you both for joining us tonight.
4: Thank you. Thanks, sorry.
1: Appreciate it. Appreciate you guys. Uh, You can always go to msnbc.com slash opening arguments to see Neil's breakdowns, including this segment and others that we archive there. There's a lot more going on, including why Trump's adult children will have to join him at taking the stand in New York. Later, we have an update on what's happening in the Middle East, including these incursions into Gaza and what we're learning about them. But up next, what I promised you, we have a live interview with White House veteran Ron Klang. That's next
0: primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit nbcnews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit nbcnews.com slash plan your vote today.
2: i see all right who mike johnson i was just elected speaker of the house oh all right and
5: your name is what
2: mike johnson no one's gonna forget that
5: so how did you end up speaker
2: no one knows remember my name america john mikeson
1: Are they jokes or is it mostly true? Saturday Night Live joking about this new Republican House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who has not been known nationally and is now in line for the presidency. The most important Republican in the House. Dealing with the Biden White House on all kinds of urgent issues from foreign aid to the shutdown that partly brought down the last speaker. They want to have common ground. Of course, this is a president that he legally refused to acknowledge won the election. Johnson well, was, according to the New York Times, one of the most important architects of the Electoral College objections to President-elect Biden's victory. We are now joined by a very special guest I mentioned at the top of the hour. He's here for the first time since departing the White House. Ron Klain was chief of staff for President Biden. He also served as chief of staff to then Vice President Biden. And President Obama also tapped him on emergency response, dealing with Ebola for the White House in 2014. He's also chief of staff to Vice President Gore. Uh, Ron, that's something we call experience, which, in times of crisis, tends to matter more. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Ari. Appreciate the introduction, too. Yes, sir. Uh, Well, let's start with that. Uh, It's easy to talk. It's easy to throw barbs. Uh, Now Mike Johnson is speaker, however unknown, as SNL joked. Um, When you look at what led to this, uh, did President Biden basically win the government shutdown face-off, Uh, McCarthy met with him, got to where you all wanted to be, uh, but then McCarthy lost his job over it. How do you see that as a prelude to trying to get a working, a a positive or working relationship uh, with this new speaker?
5: Well, I think it's a question of winning or losing, Ari. Uh, people who get elected to Congress, they have an obligation. The obligation is to make the government run. And, uh, you know, I think that the House has to meet that obligation. Uh, the funding for the government expires in just a couple of weeks. We have men and women serving on in two aircraft carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean. And they're there uh, to deter aggression from Iran. And one of those ships shot down two terrorist missiles a few de- a few weeks ago. And so to ask those men and women to serve on those ships far from home and in harm's way, and not to even issue them paychecks, seems like a ridiculous position for the Republicans in the House to take. So they, they made a deal with the president uh, earlier this year to keep the government open and also to deal with the debt limit a deal about government funding levels, and now they should honor that deal. People keep saying that the president should work in a more bipartisan way, and he's trying to. But if you make deals, you have to stick to the deals. And the House Republicans should honor the deal they made with the president earlier in the year, fund the government, keep the government open, keep the paychecks going to the men and women and the armed forces, and keep vital services going to the American people. That's the very least they can do.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you about uh, Democrats booting McCarthy, because there's all of these... Sort of Washington speak that goes on, but at the end of the day, if, if if aliens landed from a faraway galaxy here, they would say, "Oh well, yeah, the Democrats had the the angle to boot McCarthy, and they did." And the subsequent result, a couple of weeks later, after all that chaos, is Johnson. Um, from your perspective, do you think the uh, Biden administration and the Democrats? Have won, have gained something by replacing Johnson with McCarthy, or when it's all said and done, did they get a more MAGA speaker?
5: Well, the Democrats didn't didn't pick the speaker. The Democrats, if the Democrats got to pick the speaker, the speaker would be Hakeem Jeffries. Um, you know, yeah, Democrats but I'll let you finish. The but
1: to, I'll let you finish. But they did fire him. I mean, if they didn't join with the eight, he wouldn't have had to be fired. Well, it's not a surprise. The Democrats did not vote to reelect Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the
5: House. And uh, they didn't vote for Mike Johnson either, and he became Speaker. So the Republicans picked a Speaker who reflects their view, uh, extreme right-wing views, wants a national ban on abortion. Um, you know, and so that's, what the, that's where the Republicans are in the House. It's not surprising that their Speaker reflects those views. Now, the question is, can the Speaker put aside those extreme views and work with the President to help govern the country and to do the th- business of the American people? And Kevin McCarthy had very some very far-right-wing views, and he was able to work with the Biden administration to deal with the debt limit crisis to keep the government open. And now Speaker Johnson is going to have to do the same thing or the American people will pay the price.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I hear you on that. Uh, When we look at these foreign crises, I I mentioned the word crisis earlier, it's always a leadership test. Um, And a lot of people have seen, wow, President Biden has this tremendous experience, both in being in government, dealing with the complex issues around the world, as well as dealing with, all the different players. Um, and there's a real contrast here. What's first and most important, um, hopefully would be ultimately a resolution, the safety and well-being of all the people directly affected over there. Uh, but anyone familiar with American politics and history knows how you deal with a crisis also affects how the voters here see you. Um, briefly, we want to show a little bit of the contrast here of, of President Biden um, and, and the other possible person that may run against him. Take a look.
5: The United States has Israel's back. We'll make sure the Jewish and democratic state of Israel can defend itself today, tomorrow, as we always have. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart.
2: Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people.
1: And then there was the inevitable attack four days later, which I predicted. This is serious stuff, but it is the United States and and our allies in the region and perhaps the the path towards some resolution as I mentioned better served uh, with Joe Biden being president right now than the, the ex-president who's, who, who's running? Well
5: of course I think sorry. look you the pres- President Biden brings so much experience to this savvy he knows the leaders. he knows the situation. He has successfully aided Ukraine in its effort to resist Russian aggression for over a year now getting them seeing the invasion coming when most people doubted it would happen. And then helping the Ukrainians defend themselves, and he's made very clear he's going to have Israel's back as it tries to root out Hamas, which not only killed uh, hundreds of Israelis but killed 30 Americans on October 7th. And so he is standing up for the U.S. national interest, not his own personal interest. Donald Trump is self-centered. You listen to him talk about national security; it's all about him. The president knows that our men and women are on the front lines and our allies need to be have need to be defended, and that's what he's doing with judgment and wisdom and experience. I think it makes our country safer, makes the world a better place.
1: Understood. Uh, all of that is your view of, of the record. We also talked about uh, President Biden averting a shutdown and why you argued that would be better. The, a lot of reporting Republicans now don't, don't even want to sort of faint or flirt with another shutdown. Um, there's other legislative priorities he's achieved. Uh, there's putting someone on the Supreme Court. Uh, and yet the, the pushback on this, and I want to give you a chance to answer it, Ron, is... Uh, there's still tremendous concern or or lack of satisfaction uh, with with President Biden's tenure thus far, if you ask people. Uh, I want to show you Gallup, which is a a pretty reputable long-term polling company. Uh, It's a low 37% approval. Uh, If you take Republicans out of the mix and how polarized people argue that is, I want to show you Democrats now when you ask them. Uh, The majority of Democrats say their view uh, is that basically they're concerned Um, that President Biden may be, quote, too old uh, to to run through a second term. Uh, What do you say here tonight to those questions, which, again, are not uh, just the media or just his usual detractors? Um, There seems to be something out there in the country. You know the man well. You obviously believe in him. You you served with him. Uh, What do you say to those not easily dismissible widespread concerns? Well, I say, first of all, on
5: the approval rating, polls are polls. And in the end, He's going to run against the Republican opponent. And the choice is not Joe Biden against perfection, but Joe Biden against the alternative, as the president likes to say. And I'm convinced he will be the choice of the American people again, as he was in 2020. That When they compare Joe Biden to his likely opponent, Donald Trump, the American people are not going to want to go back to the craziness we had those four years, the chaos, the insanity, the the corruption. They're going to want to stick with President Biden, with what he's gotten done and what he can get done. So I, I think the approval rating is less important for that. In terms of people saying he's too old, I will tell you this sorry. I think his age, I understand why people raise age as an issue. He is our oldest president in history. But you look at what he's doing, look at how he does the job. A couple, a couple weeks ago, he flew to Israel. This was up 24 hours, went over there in a single day, did, made critical statements over there, and did critical diplomatic work over there, helped negotiate an agreement to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, helped work with the Israelis on the defense issues then came back and gave a live nationally televised address. Every person in America could watch and see the president at work. What they've seen is a president with wisdom and savvy and experience who succeeded in getting things done in the Congress when people said nothing could happen, and who succeeded in defending our allies in Ukraine, who are succeeding in, in backing up the Israelis and also getting humanitarian aid into Gaza. Very difficult situations. And I think his age speaks to his wisdom and experience. It's what we need right now in the White House, I could say, from someone who was there with him The man is more than up to the job. He proves it with his stamina and endurance every day as he does the job. And the American people are well served by having him there. We need him there for four more years.
1: Hmm. Well, now people get to hear uh, your perspective on that. And as mentioned, uh, you have a lot of experience on that. Uh, And Ron, I appreciate you coming back on the beat, taking all the questions. Uh, This kind of exchange, we we think it's worthwhile. So I appreciate you making the time. I know you're busy. Thanks for having me, Ari. I look forward to coming back again soon. Great. Yes, sir. All right. Ron Klain, uh, our special guest tonight. We appreciate that. I'll tell everyone what's coming up. That New York trial is going to have something that we haven't seen in many years. Donald Trump and his adult children on the stand under oath. The fraud trials developments. We have more on that and uh, news out of the Middle East as we get some indications of what has been a largely secretive set of ground incursions over the weekend. We have an update and a special guest on that. We are now in the 1 a.m. hour in Gaza, where Israeli forces have conducted ground operations that remain largely shrouded in secrecy since some of the news about those procedures broke on Friday. Israel Defense Forces say today they rescued a female hostage who was kidnapped by Hamas, a private in the Israeli military. They released this picture. Israeli officials say, however, 239 hostages are still held by Hamas. Israel also saying it did strike about 600 terror targets within Gaza over the weekend, including weapons depots and anti-take missile launching positions. There is some information and video of that. The war continues to spark understandably strong reactions around the world, including debates over what a path towards peace would entail. For example, there are calls for Hamas to release all the hostages. There are also calls for some sort of immediate ceasefire. Historically, though, it would be unusual to reach a ceasefire while terrorists hold hostages and vow further actions of war and attacks on civilians. To that end, in remarks to the international press today, the Israeli leader Netanyahu rebuffed the idea that Israel would surrender into a ceasefire while Hamas continues to hold hostages and vows to be on the attack.
0: Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Israel did not start this war. Israel did not want this war. But Israel will win this war.
1: That is the Prime Minister's position, and as you could hear, a statement made in English to the international audience. Meanwhile, humanitarian crisis in Gaza is worsening. According to the UN, about a million people now have been displaced in that area. More trucks were able to deliver some food and medical equipment today, uh, as there has been debates over how to get material into that badly damaged area. We're now joined by Stephen Cook, a Middle East expert with the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Welcome. Uh, First, your explanation of, of what the prime minister is getting at there. We've covered uh, what is some terrible hardship uh, in the Gaza territory uh, and how many innocent civilians are caught up in that. Um, while the prime minister's statements would echo for any, any American who remembers 9-11, there wasn't a lot of talk of an immediate American, quote, ceasefire uh, before any response had, had been practiced or any pursuit of what were then missing uh, terrorist fugitives internationally.
3: Well, I think he was abundantly clear, and it's everything that anybody who's been looking at the situation since October 7th has heard and sensed from the Israelis, which is that um, they have changed the rules of the game and that they will not uh, bow to international pressure for a ceasefire, that they are – First and only uh, objective is the destruction of Hamas and the security of Israelis. That's the irreducible responsibility of the Israeli government, unfortunately, is coming with all of this uh, tremendous destruction in the Gaza Strip and a a desperate humanitarian uh, situation. But once again, uh, the Israelis are not in listening mode here. Uh, after the uh, deaths of 1,400 uh, Israelis in the first day or so of this conflict, which is a huge number for Israel. They are um, determined to take this fight to the Gaza Strip and to Hamas.
1: Yeah. Uh, And there are so many aspects to this. We've emphasized in our reporting uh, how many different groups there are, how many different countries are in play. Uh, Israel is a relatively young state. It is the only uh, Jewish nation state uh in the world and prior uh to the Holocaust there was no such state. Um, and we're seeing a reaction here that whatever one thinks of the military operations or the Netanyahu government, which is frankly quite controversial both within and outside of Israel, we're seeing reactions uh that traffic back more and just direct anti-Israel or anti-Semitic uh approaches, which is a, a very old thing in in the world. I want to show for for viewers and for you, Sunday, Uh, This mob stormed uh, the airport that was in Russia, where a plane was arriving from Tel Aviv. It was quite a harrowing scene. Uh, Now, this is an area of Russia that is largely Muslim. There were reports of signs that were attacking the Jewish people, saying, we don't welcome Jewish refugees, uh, 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 accusing anyone with any link to, well, frankly, just a plane from Tel Aviv as being a, quote, child killer. Uh, it It was quite a scene. We have some more of the video here. Uh, the Biden administration speaking out on this against anti-Semitism. Uh, and so, Stephen, with all of the complexity this requires, I, I wanted to get your view of where these type of international incidents and sort of rank old school anti-Semitism in a country uh, like Russia that had pogroms, that had the mass killing of of, of Jewish residents and citizens. Uh, where does that fit into some of the opprobrium here? And, and how should the international community uh, deal with that?
3: Well, anybody, particularly American Jews who watched that video, had to be shaken to the core, given Russia's history with pogroms and the vast number of American Jews who can trace uh, much of their family's history back to this part of the world. What we are seeing as a result of the Israeli operations is this kind of uptick in anti-Israel and, as you point out, anti-Semitic protests uh, around the world. Some of them are fused together. Some are, are not. Um, But it's incumbent upon um, the international community and governments uh, to make it clear that while passionate solidarity with the Palestinian people is one thing, but uh, attacking innocent Jews or threatening to attack innocent Jews is entirely something else. My sense is that in Russia, uh, in Turkey, in other places, that leaders are, in fact, stirring these types of sentiments for their own domestic political purposes.
1: Right, which there's a long history of that as well. Uh, finally, before I lose you, I did want to uh, put up the headline of, of Netanyahu, who's had many problems even before this, uh, this terrible attack on the 7th. Um, he was basically, uh, had to apologize now, because he tried to put out some sort of statement where he was accusing his own uh, military leaders of the lapses that led to the massacre. Uh, it was widely seen, I think, within Israel, according to reporting, and, and basically what people were saying, as him passing the buck, uh, when it was in fact some of his specific and controversial policies that were dividing the government in Israel, uh, and then he had to sort of walk it back. Um, if this weren't such a serious uh, uh, conflict, right? Many Americans are familiar with the idea of politicians saying something and walking it back. But this is on sort of the central and uh, the central damaging war they're in. Um, what does it tell you as an observer there that that Netanyahu is still this, shall we say, quote strident? Um, And also misfiring. I mean, that he literally tried this and walked it back because the opprobrium, the the opposition, including from the Israeli right, was too strong. Uh,
3: Netanyahu is a a deeply cynical, but also quite successful politician. But it strikes me that this statement was one of desperation. Um, It is almost unheard of for an Israeli prime minister to criticize publicly uh, the security chiefs. These is kind of the holy of holies. Uh, in in Israel, and clearly Netanyahu is fighting for his political life. He understands the polls. As you pointed out, this was already uh, a controversial government, and his effort to ignore the idea that the buck stops with him as the head of government, as the prime minister, has gotten him into even more trouble at a moment where uh, his political career seems to be coming to an end.
1: Yeah, and there's been a lot of signs, and we even had uh, his former uh Rival Barak on the program. There's a lot of signs that people both see it as ending, uh, but also are trying to give some room because they're in the middle of a war. Um, whether that even holds is tenable in the in the unity government. There, we're also tracking. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations, Stephen Cook. Thanks for making time tonight. My pleasure, Ari. I appreciate it. We're going to fit in a break when we come back. I mentioned the trials and the cases can blur, but that 's because Donald Trump is in so much trouble, his kids are going to be forced under the stand. We have the update on that next it 's not every day that Donald Trump and his adult children are all forced to take the stand indeed this hasn 't happened in over a decade. but just last week, of course, Trump was forced to witness stand that was over. Uh, kind of a process issue because he violated his civil gag order. This is different than the other new federal gag order that was slapped back on him last night. I know it's a lot to keep track of, but we got you. This is the civil case in New York over fraud. He was fined 10K by the judge for violating that gag order.
4: We have breaking news that the former president, Donald Trump, has just been fined $10,000 by the judge. Judge Angoron put Trump on the stand to ask him what he was referring to, whether he was talking about Michael Cohen or referring again to the judge's law clerk, who's the subject of a gag order.
2: What an extraordinary moment just happened in court. Donald Trump testifying in open court and having a judge say, I find you not credible.
1: That played as a big deal. That was all just last week. Now, that is, again, the civil case in New York where a lot of money's on the line. This is the case where Trump's businesses are being tested, where what he's allowed to legally do in business may be further narrowed. So, now, defendant Trump and his adult children will testify. This week, we can tell you it starts off with Don Jr. and Eric Trump. Next week, defendant Trump will take the stand. It'll be about more than just the gag order. And then by November 8th, you see Ivanka Trump. Now, Trump's three adult children have been involved in his company, his branding, and many different business activities. It has also sometimes blurred, to say the least, the line between personal and business because in efforts to either save money or cut corners or sometimes play games with the tax authorities, and the New York Times has busted at least Trump himself for that, the kids bit of a separate matter, but some of their homes are actually owned by LLCs, which the judge has stripped of their legal business standing. This is a place that's really special to myself. It's really special to my brother, my father, really the whole family. I
3: mean, this is really our compound. And I've spent so much of my life here. My cabin in upstate New York, because it's owned in an LLC, that is a corporation. And therefore, because I'm a part of it somehow, uh, that has to be disbanded. And so, well, so then what or who actually owns my cabin at this point? It's
4: easier for us to be personal, to take our brand personally, because it is a family brand.
1: It is a family brand. It is as Sly and the Family Stone might say, a family affair. And the younger Mr. Trump there said, what or who owns my cabin? That's a real legal question if the entity that owns your cabin is so rife with fraud that it's no longer allowed to operate. These are corporate rules that, as I mentioned, may have saved them money, taxes, and other things over the years. Now, depending on the outcome of this trial, they may find the downside to playing so many corporate games. We will also learn how much damages Donald Trump and his company itself will have to pay. They are asking at the attorney general's office for over $200 million. We do think the trial will be done by the end of the year, so we will know that number and how it affects the whole family affair. We'll be right back. That does it for The Beat. You can always find me online at Ari Melber or AriMelber.com. And thanks for spending time with us.